Welcome to the Beyond Your Money podcast with Mike Dukovich, financial advisor and retirement income certified professional with RBC Wealth Management. Join us as we share the tools and insight that can help you take control of your money and your life. Because we believe life's greatest returns are realized when you invest beyond your money. And welcome to the Beyond Your Money podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Mike Dukovich. I'm a financial advisor and retirement income certified professional with RBC Wealth Management. For those of you who have tuned in before, welcome back. But for anyone that's listening for the first time, this podcast is designed to help you take control. And we'll do that by not only discussing a financial topic that's timely and that's relevant and that hopefully is applicable to your own financial plan, but we will also discuss an important topic that goes beyond your money. And today's Beyond Your Money topic will focus on the basics of the estate plan. And to help us navigate that incredibly important topic, I will be having a discussion with attorney Jay Hagerman, managing partner of the estate planning firm Abernethy & Hagerman, located right here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. But before we get to Jay, let's talk about your money. Today, we're going to talk about a very important investment strategy called dollar cost averaging. And when this comes into play is when we are trying to decide, along with a client, when to put money to work. And that could be a result of a number of different things. Let's say there's, there's a new account and money has just come into the account ready to go to work. Let's say there was an inheritance and you have cash to invest. Or perhaps there was a retirement rollover from a qualified retirement plan, like a, like a 401k or 403b, and it's now sitting in your IRA. Well, we have to decide when to put that money to work, when to invest it into the market. Now, one strategy, which is considered or called a lump sum investment strategy, is that we just put it into the market all at once. We go all in, all at the same time. And over time, if you give that money time to work and you have a long period of time to allow it to work, you'll be just fine. The market will tend to average that investment decision out and the market will, will take care of it. However, in the shorter term, if you go all in all at once, that could be very good or it could be very bad. And it really depends on the timing of that initial investment. One of the other issues is, is that there could be emotional questions that come into play. Do you have the stomach to go all in if the market is choppy or volatile or way down? We all know that you probably should. The old premise is that you want to invest when the prices are low and, and, and sell when prices are higher. But do you have the stomach to do that? Perhaps you don't. If the market's volatile or if you just don't have the emotional wherewithal to, to, to make those investment decisions as, as far as a lump sum, then perhaps you should consider or perhaps you might want to consider a dollar cost averaging approach. And, and what that means is that you are systematically investing. Dollar cost averaging is, is a periodic investment strategy that involves continuous investments of the same dollar amount into a security or into a portfolio and you're doing so at a predetermined interval, whether that's monthly or quarterly or annually, and you're doing so regardless of what the investment's fluctuating price looks like. So you are putting money in regardless of whether the market is up or down or, or choppy or volatile. You don't care. You've committed to putting the same dollar amount in at a designated point in time. And so the benefit of this for me is that it eliminates the emotional side of the, of the investment decision. Because you have committed to putting money to work on an ongoing and systematic basis, well, guess what? 
you don't care if the market is up or down or choppy or sideways. It doesn't matter. You've already committed to putting those dollars to work. And so one of the other key benefits to this is that if you are doing so and the market is down, well, guess what? Your dollars are buying more shares because they're cheaper. Now, inherently, if the market is up or moving higher and you are systematically investing, then you could be buying fewer shares because the price is higher. And, and that makes sense. Now, over time, though, a dollar cost averaging approach, it tends to average out. And, and one of the benefits is that you could actually have an average cost per share that is lower than the average market price, which is a good thing. Now, there are some considerations before you decide whether or not you want to use dollar cost averaging when you're putting your money to work. And, and one of the main things is that you want to make sure that you can stick to this plan. You want to make sure that you are disciplined enough to follow through with it. Because if you can't, if the market gets volatile or if the market gets choppy and you just don't have the stomach to continue to invest, well, you're losing quite a bit of the benefit that's derived from buying when the prices are low. So you want to make sure that you have the stomach and that you have the discipline to stick to a good dollar cost averaging program. One of the other benefits that tends to diminish with a, with a dollar cost averaging program is, is, is just time. If you have a very long period of time to let this money work, well, time itself will help you average out the market's ups and downs. So a dollar cost averaging strategy, the benefits of, of buying low and selling high tend to diminish over a long period of time if you allow that money to work. One of the other considerations you want to think about before you incorporate a dollar cost averaging, averaging strategy are fees and transactional costs which if you think about it, if you're buying things systematically over a period of time, that's multiple purchases. And so you wanna make sure that you completely understand the transactional costs or the fees or the commissions that might mount up if you're buying things over a period of time. Now, I will tell you, there, there are a lot of programs out there that will actually sometimes waive the transactional cost if you commit to a dollar cost averaging program. So bottom line, when you're ready to put money to work, you can either do so lump sum all at once or incorporate some sort of systematic investment strategy like dollar cost averaging. And in each case is different. It depends on the individual circumstance. It depends on your risk tolerances and your time horizons. Your financial advisor needs to know how long before you need the money and whether or not you're going to be able to continue saving. They need to know, are you an emotional investor that has a low risk tolerance or, or can you stomach the ups and downs? They also you know, need to take into consideration what the market is doing. Is it volatile? Is it up at all-time highs? Is it low? Are we in the middle of a, a correction? All of these things come into play, and it's all relevant when we're trying to decide whether or not it's right to do a lump sum uh, investment strategy or to incorporate the dollar cost averaging strategy. So as always, please consult your financial advisor before making those decisions. And with that, now let's talk about something that goes beyond your money. Today's Beyond Your Money topic is estate planning, and we're going to talk about the basic elements of an estate plan and why it's relevant to your overall comprehensive wealth plan. And in order to help us with this critical topic, I've invited attorney Jay Hagerman to the show. Jay is the managing partner at Abernathy & Hagerman, located right here in the North Hills of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. His law firm focuses only on wills, estates, trusts, and elder law. And he's an active member of the Pennsylvania Bar Association and is a frequent lecturer on the topics of probate and trust law for the Pennsylvania Bar. He's married to his lovely wife, Tara, and they have a young daughter with another one on the way. Jay, first off, congratulations about the growing family. That's great. Yeah, thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. 
Of course. So before we dive into estate planning, why don't you tell us a little bit about you, your background, your education, your experience? Let's, let's learn a little bit about Jay first. Sure. As you said, I grew up in the North Hills of Pittsburgh, and I went to Gettysburg College. I thought I wanted to be a professor of American history, and Gettysburg is a great place to study uh, <laughs> American history, obviously, because of the battle. But I found out that I actually like people too much, <laughs> rather than that dusty library books. So I went to law school at Duquesne University, uh, also in Pittsburgh, kind of a theme, right? And because of my relationship with my, my World War II veteran grandfather, as he aged and you know, eventually became sick and, and stuff like that, I really found a niche area of um, dealing with people that have those issues of, of, I guess, the geriatric care issues, and then also the elder law issues and, and veterans benefits and just how that looks for that, that generation of heroes. So I navigated that system, and I really fell in love with uh, estate planning, elder law, probate and trust. And, and as you said before, I'm uh, very heavily involved with the Pennsylvania Bar Association. I'm a frequent lecturer on those topics, and it's really, uh, it's not really a job, it's a calling for me, and I really love it. That's great. That's great to hear. I, I love talking to people who are passionate about what they do and, and have found their calling, and, and it's great. They say, if you love what you do, you're not really working, right? Well, um, it's not easy all days, but, <laughs> but it certainly sure. is can be very rewarding. I, I tell people that sometimes one of the best uh, rewards that I get is, is a hug rather than a check. Sure. So. Of course, I feel the same way. That's great. Jay, we're going to talk about estate planning. And, and as I've mentioned in my past podcast, estate planning is just one pillar that, that makes up your overall comprehensive wealth plan. It's an important pillar. It's basically you're putting things in place so that God forbid something were to happen to you, that your family or, or whoever you're leaving things to, they're, they're taken care of. So this is a very important topic. I address it with all of my clients. And basically what we want to do here today is just talk about the basics. So with that said, Jay, what is an estate plan? What does, what does that even sure. mean? Sure. I mean, basically the, the estate plan <clears throat> it addresses uh, something in, in life that, that all lawyers are trained really to think about. And that's the question of what's the worst that could happen. And sometimes those answers are pretty difficult to, <laughs> to hear, frankly. An estate plan is generally a series of documents that are provided by you know, an attorney or, or drafted. But in any event, it's, it's a series of documents that outline who's in charge of certain things when bad stuff happens to good people. And that bad stuff could be incapacity. It could be you know, as we age, we get dementia. Uh, it could be a traumatic medical event. And ultimately, I mean, we're all going to get there, and that's death. Sure. Uh, so an estate plan really details a, a game plan. I'm an old football player, so I like to say it's a game plan of, of certain details of your life uh, when bad things happen to good people. That makes sense. And I guess this might be a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Does everyone need one? Who, who needs an estate plan? Yeah, generally, I mean, as we get older, everyone needs an estate plan. Eventually, that's something that <laughs> the new phrase is, quote, unquote, adulting. Sure. You know, just like that you would have to maybe look into life insurance or any type of, when you buy a car, you get car insurance or anything else like that. Those are financial tools. But from a legal perspective, this is like legal insurance or legal health. These documents, as you get older, especially um, in the adult era, pretty much everyone needs something because bad stuff does happen to good people. And that makes sense. When you become an adult or when you start working or raising a family, at a certain point, is there a age that you suggest people get this done, or when? Well, when should I mean, you once start again, looking at estate plans. Yeah, in most jurisdictions, the age of majority, if not all, is the age of eighteen. So, I mean, obviously, that's that could be a little bit young. But once again, I, I typically say that there's about five or six change of life circumstances, in which case you either need to get an estate plan or need to evaluate your current one. 
And I mean, that would be, for instance, marriage, divorce, you know, contrapositive, death of a loved one, incapacity of a loved one, basically any type of adoption, or I hate to say this, even death of a child or, or birth, birth of a child. Or, or some one of your loved ones goes into a facility or even may, you may have to go to a facility, uh, like a long-term care facility. Those six or seven instances are basically whenever you would need to either obtain an estate plan if you're responsible or have your current one evaluated, which most people, you know, you, you think, oh, I have an estate plan. I'm good to go. Well, facts, facts change. And uh, so does life. Uh, so right. you have to have, sometimes you don't want to use yesteryear's tools to fix today's problems. That makes a lot of sense. And, and that, that kind of goes along with what we do on my side is, is we're always addressing and changing and adapting the plan. So it's not, it's not something you just put in the place and, and kind of set it and forget it and, and walk away. This is something that you put in the place. There's a lot of thought and analyses and, and, and a lot of tools at your disposal that you can utilize. But once it's in place, it's not just set it and forget it. You're always going back and redoing things or looking at things and making adjustments as necessary. So it sounds like it's quite a bit like what we're doing on our side. It's just like changing the game plan at halftime if you're losing. Simple That's as right. that. Sure. <laughs> well, so Jay, I'm going to ask you another question. This could be another dumb question, so I apologize. But what happens if you don't have an estate plan and something bad happens to you? Well, it depends on what that bad thing is. I mean, if it's death, every jurisdiction has a series of laws, default state laws that basically detail what happens to your stuff and who's in charge of your stuff if you don't have a, a written document that governs those, those assets or the, that stuff. Uh, those are generally called intestate laws, which means whenever you die with a will or with the last will intestine, you die testamentary or testate. If you die without a will, you die intestate. So therefore, you're, you're stuck with default state law, whatever that may be. If you become incapacitated, get into a car accident and you're in a coma or whatnot, for, especially, for, especially for a long period of time, every state has some type of guard, guardianship or conservatorship, which basically your loved ones would have to petition the court and have a court-appointed guardian or conservator over your assets and your person to make decisions for you. Now, generally, you can change that with, with the state planning documents that we'll talk about later. So it, that's an important point. If you don't have a plan in place and something terrible happens to you, an accident, let's say, and you're theoretically in the hospital and, and can't make decisions on your own accord, someone has to petition the court in order to get that guardianship. It's not just given to kind of the, the spouse or someone next in line. Right. I mean, once again, I mean, everyone is everyone who exists is presumed to have mental capacity. The problem is in order to take that presumption away, there has to be some type of proceeding in order to do that. Yeah. Uh, and then also there needs to be a court order that de details legal authority in order to over that person. So, I mean, the bottom line though, and I hate to be funny about it is whether you have a, your own estate plan or whether you don't, you actually do have one. It's just whatever the state legislature says is your plan. And sure. that's not always what you want. Of course. Yeah. So, so bottom line, and I, this will probably be the, the theme throughout is it, it makes sense to have a plan in place rather than not. Yeah. Why, why wouldn't you want to, why wouldn't you want to govern your affairs instead of letting someone in your capital city do that? Of course. So, we're going to dive into the kind of the basic components of an estate plan. But before we do that, one of the things that I always address with our clients every year when we're doing our STEM meetings is we do what's called a beneficiary check. And, and, and I'm sure you're going to be able to tell us why, but beneficiary designations are very important. Can you give us an idea as to why that is? Start at the end first with, with death, and then we'll bring everyone back to life before we leave. Then we'll talk about the living documents. I mean, basically, whenever you pass away, there's your assets will pass one of uh, several ways. 
a beneficiary designation is what we call a non-probate asset. And we'll talk about what that word probate means. But basically it says, if I pass away, my, my two children essentially get these assets with, by operation of law. That's simple as that. Whatever Who has ever designated as the beneficiary gets those assets in the proportion in which they're designated. There's also jointly held assets, and this is very common for spouses. So if one spouse dies, then the other spouse, by operation of law, inherits that property, which we call in tenancy by the entirety or joint tenancy, depending on which jurisdiction you live in. Then there's also the probate process, which we'll talk about next. And you can also inherit assets through trusts, which is just a, a modified probate process and probably a more efficient probate process. So bottom line is you always want to make sure that your beneficiary designations are up to date, right? And that yeah, you know who's, exactly. who's on there. Okay. Yeah, yep, exactly. So let's dive in a little bit. Let's talk about the basic components of the estate plan. Okay. And, and those would, uh, those are what? What What are the basically the, the three or four different components of a basic? Right. Estate? Pretty much in every jurisdiction, you generally have two living documents and you have uh, one testamentary document generally. There's other stuff that we'll talk, we'll talk about later, touch on. But generally you have, for your living documents, you have a living will or an advanced health care directive or a medical power of attorney, whatever your jurisdiction calls that. Uh, that handles your personhood, right? Who's making your medical decisions? Who's, who's governing where you, which hospital you go to, which doctors you're seeing, which medications you're getting that governs your, your personhood, your actual physical being. Then there's the financial power of attorney or maybe even expressed as power of attorney. Sometimes we're even called general powers of attorney. That really governs your living estate. And what that is, is uh, it details how your money is handled, how your assets are handled, how your debts are paid. I mean, most jurisdictions really separate personhood from assets of your living estate. So there are generally two different documents that govern your affairs while you're alive. Okay. The final document, of course, is whenever you pass away and you have your last great day, those documents die with you. They're just living documents. So when you're gone, they don't, they don't have any legal authority. And that's generally whenever someone has a last will and testament, which details who's in charge of your, who's in charge of your stuff, for lack of a better term, or your assets, and, and how do they pass? Where do they go? Let's start there, if you don't mind. Let's, let's dive into yeah. that will and testament. Sometimes we just call it a will, right? Yep. I think most people will, yep. will understand it as that. Sure. What does a will do? Why, why is it important? Sure. So a will is important for a number of reasons. Let's talk about the key characters. Whenever you write a will, you're called the testator. You're the person who's drafting the will. I mean, even your lawyer's doing it, hopefully, but you're the person who's signing it. So you're sure. your will. And also there's, there's beneficiaries who are getting the stuff, and the person that kind of facilitates that is called the executor. Most people have heard the executor of a will. And, and the executor has whenever the testator dies, to marshal the assets, to pay the creditors of the decedent's estate in the order of priority detailed in the will or under state law, and then to distribute the assets to the beneficiaries, however the testator desires the beneficiaries to inherit those assets. There are other things that most people don't consider in a will that are extremely important, much like some states have inheritance tax. And you'd have to check on your individual state to see if there's some type of a state or inheritance tax, but there's tax clauses in wills that says who pays that. And maybe even you're lucky enough to have a federal estate tax issue, which is millions and millions of dollars. I always say it's a good problem to have, but it also could deal with, with that type of, uh, where does the money come from to pay that type of tax? The other thing is, in some jurisdictions, whenever uh, you serve as executive, you have to post a bond to the probate court or the register of wills, whatever your jurisdiction has. 
you can waive the bond. And, and what a bond is, is basically an insurance policy that the executor would have to purchase and give to the court that says that they're not going to take all the money in the estate and run to Jamaica. Well, <laughs> most, of, most of the times, your loved ones or your executors, whether it's your spouse or your, your parents or your children, so they're not going to do that anyway because they would be depriving themselves and putting themselves in a, in, a, in a potentially criminal situation. So that's not going to happen. So a lot of times it doesn't make sense for bond to be posted for an executor because it's not necessary. So the will can waive that bond. Those are, those are two kind of minor issues that really no one ever thinks about right. that are generally in wills. And so as far as getting the stuff, the lack of a better term, you're, you're, mm-hmm. the will is what directs the executor to collect the stuff and then distribute it appropriately. Is that that right? Yeah. And as we talked about before, these are the assets that don't pass by beneficiary designation or that aren't jointly owned. So a lot of times we see if you have two spouses living in a house, generally the the deed is spouse one and spouse two. But when spouse two passes away, then everything will go through that spouse as well because there's spouse one has predeceased. Also, generally you have checking and savings accounts in the same situation, vehicles, I mean, you can also have assets that were, that would, I've seen this before, that typically contain beneficiary designations, such as life insurance policies, annuities, investment accounts, that for some reason don't have beneficiary designations on them. If they don't have a beneficiary designation, then they pass through the will. So going to your first point, it's extremely important to work with your financial professional to make sure that you have proper beneficiary designations on all of your assets that can pass that way, if you desire that. But if they don't, your will is kind of your catch-all for that process. Yeah, I, I kind of with a client when we're discussing this, I kind of call the will your cleanup crew. It handles yeah. anything <laughs> that doesn't already have a beneficiary. And, and let's let's talk about that. Let's emphasize that really quickly. So this is this is a question I'm, I always see people kind of look at me funny and, and and say, "Really? Is that how that works?" The beneficiary designations trump the will. If you have yes. something that has a beneficiary designation. That will pass by contract of law, to your point, to the beneficiary. The will takes care of anything that's left over. Is that right? That's right. So if I've seen it before, and this is kind of a nightmare type of scenario, but if there's a divorce situation and a remarried or someone gets remarried and doesn't get around to changing the beneficiary on the old investment accounts or on the old life insurance or, or something like that, they have the, the ex-spouse still listed there. Even if they went and got a new will and designated everything to go to the to the new spouse, the old beneficiary designation would still trump the new will. Is that is that fair? Uh, depending on state law, that's possible. Okay. Every state's different, but I mean, it, it's it's definitely possible for that to occur, which is problematic. Absolutely. It's, you could obviously see why that would not be a good situation to be in. So that's why we do the beneficiary checks every year in our in our STEM meetings. That makes sense. The wills to clean up crew. Let's talk about the other major component, the power of attorney. What does that do? Yeah. Why, why is that so important? Let's, let's bring everyone back to life now, right? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so basically we have you know, these two living documents. We'll go with the financial power of attorney uh, first, basically. And, and not, it's not necessary that your medical power of attorney or your advanced healthcare directive uh, agent is the same person as your financial one. I've seen a lot of families where um, there's one child that's inclined to a medical field and the other child inclined to financial affairs and they kind of split the, the difference there. So typically there, there, there's two players in using powers of attorney. You have the agent and the principal. 
The principal is the person who actually signs a document giving the legal authority for the agent to act on your behalf. And this goes to the law of agency, which is basically like you would think an agent works in a fiduciary capacity for the benefit of the principal. Why is that important? Well, I mean, let's just say you're not, you're not dead yet, but you designate one of your loved ones as your agent under power of attorney and you get into a car accident, you're in a coma, but your mortgage comes due. Your mortgage company doesn't care what's going to you. They want paid on the 15th of the month, no matter what, or else you get a fine or go to a foreclosure. I'm not trying to be mean to them, but that's just the business. That's, that's how it works. So, so your agent has the ability to you know, write checks on your behalf, to pay your bills, make sure your property doesn't get foreclosed on, all that, all that type of stuff so that um, when bad things happen to good people, there's a way to handle that. I will say that a lot of times that financial powers of attorney can be uh, ripe for abuse. So you really have to trust the individual who you make as your agent. But there's more harm in not having one than there is in having one. The reason why is if you don't have a financial power of attorney and something bad does happen, like you get into a car accident, you're in a prolonged coma, or let's just say, God forbid, you have Alzheimer's or dementia later on in life. And you, you can't sign a check because you don't know who you're paying or you don't even know your name. And I'm not trying to be funny. That actually happens, sadly. Someone has to pay your, your bills uh, in order to do that. And let's talk about if they don't. For either the medical or the fi financial ones, if no one has the legal authority to act on your behalf, then either your loved one or if you're in a facility, the facility will petition the, the county court that you're in uh, and have a judge appoint somebody, whether it's a loved one or whether it's a third party, as your guardian or conservator so that someone can access your assets and can make medical decisions for you. So by you drafting your own documents or having your attorney draft your own documents, you're in, your, you're in the driver's seat of your affairs. If you have which is a, the court which is decide, important. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, who wouldn't want to have control over their own life? Right. <laughs> absolutely. Rather than some judge in a black robe who you may, may, may likely have never met. Let's, let's quickly address one issue that I, I hear quite a bit in meetings. I'm married, right? If something happens mm -hmm. to me, my wife is going to be able to do it. She's going to be able to take care of it. Is that right? Well, generally, let's, let's, it, let's it depends. Yeah, it depends. I mean, generally, most, most spouses, you know, if they're married, they have joint assets. But the one thing that you probably talk with your, your folks a lot about are 401ks, 403bs, IRAs. Well, the I in IRA stands for individual. My wife can't access my IRA or my 401k because she's not me. Even in the worst circumstances, my 401k provider or my IRA custodian is not going to allow my wife to make decisions based on my individual account. Sure. But a large portion of people's wealth is generally in their retirement vehicles. So that's a, that's a scenario. But if, if someone is in a facility or has massive medical bills of ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 a month, and we need to access that money, just by the nature of being married is not going to allow that access. That's very important to, to understand. Just, just because you're married does not give you the power of attorney that you'll need to make those types of decisions on, on certain assets. That's very important. But let's right. talk about the third component, the, the living will, or, or you pointed out, it's sometimes called the, the medical directive or the medical yep. power of attorney. What is that? Who are the key players yeah. there? So basically, once again, we still have, we have an agent and we have a principal. The principal is a person that's signing the, the document and, and the agent's the person acting on that behalf. One of the most important things in, in generally the medical power of attorney or the advanced health care directive and the living will are, are two separate documents. In some states, they are two separate documents. So there could be three. In, in, uh, some states are combined to one medical director or advanced health care directive. So let's talk about that first. The, uh, 
the advanced healthcare directive, the medical directive, is basically a medical power of attorney, which in the event that the principal can't make or understand or communicate their decisions, this allows the agent to make decisions for them medically. Okay. Mm-hmm. The most important component of this is there's, there's a federal law that went into place called HIPAA. It's the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. It went into effect January 1st, 1996. A lot of these, uh, HIPAA basically precludes a lot of situations from uh, uh, basically my medical documents are, and my medical concerns are my, mine. There's a medical privacy act, even between spouses, which is kind of mind-boggling, but it's, it's reality. So the most important thing is that you have in this document is you have the ability to waive HIPAA. So that allows your agent, your medical agent, to make decisions on your behalf and to talk to your doctors and to view your medical chart and to get the full picture. That's very important. Once again, this is only if you're unable to make, understand, or communicate a choice yourself. Okay, so this is a coma. It could be a car accident. Once again, all these not fun things to think about. Let's talk about the living will. The living will, I would say that things are going to get better, but they don't. I mean, the living will is is a document that governs not only whenever you can't make, understand, or communicate a choice regarding your health care, but it also is whenever you are in a terminal uh, phase of your life, which means that there is no realistic hope of significant recovery or healing. You're not getting uh, better. You're, it, it, this is it. This is the end of the line. Yep. There's no medical – it's medically certain that we're going into the end stretch here. Sure. And the living will then governs – I mean, once again, it varies from state to state what the different procedures are, but uh, the living will governs how you want that terminal phase, that end stage condition to look, whether you want tube feedings, whether you want to be, have pain management, I mean, that type of stuff. Uh, once again, not terribly fun to think about, but I mean, the question is, if, if you're at the end of the line, do you want to be kept comfortable and pass naturally, or do you want, you want the doctors shoving a tube down your throat or in your stomach to feed you? I mean, once again, not fun stuff to think about, but what, it all goes back to who do you want to be in charge? Do you want to govern your own life, or do you want a third party, whether it be a judge or a doctor, to make your decisions for you. Yeah, and I think that's an easy call for most people. Is I think so, you too. Wanna, you want to be in charge, so it makes sense to get this stuff done. I think it's a no-brainer. Jay, there's another, I'll call it a, a pretty important component to, to some estate plans if, if the situation arises, and that's trusts. Uh, yeah. This is a, this is a topic for another show in and of itself. I think we're gonna no doubt save that for a, a future discussion. But can you just give us the quick thirty thousand foot view on what a trust is and what it does? Right. So a trust is a as a separate vehicle, and they can arise either in a will or they can be an independent living document that you create while you're alive and fund while you're alive that basically pass assets under a certain rule set that are different. There's thirty five different types of trusts. They all serve a lot of different functions. There's different tax benefits. There's different probate avoidance functions. There's different incapacity rule sets. I mean, there's a whole bunch of, of, of different benefits that trusts use. Um, there's, I mean, asset protection is a big one sure. know, from the from nursing homes and stuff like that. But basically, I think that that would, that would cover a whole different show. I mean, the one thing I will say about trusts is most people think that they have to be a Rockefeller in order to... Uh, you have to have billions of dollars to have a trust. And that's just not true. It's just about whether you want to, what your priorities are. And once again, having a, a conversation with your you know, legal professional or your financial professional about what your goals are and what you want to accomplish or protect or, or do is important and whether you know, setting a trust up is important. And a lot of them are very affordable and, and, and a lot of families can very much benefit from trusts. Of course, yeah. I, I see them used a lot. It's not necessarily uh, because we're dealing with millions and millions and millions of dollars, but sometimes things pop up where you might not want 
uh, the children getting lump sums of money right, right out of the gate in a lump sum, right? You might want to put handcuffs on that, on that inheritance. And so trusts are told to make that happen. And so right. it, we're going to, we're going to address trust in a future show and get uh, down and dirty with that. So let's, uh, let's just leave that as it is. Jay, yep. I want to do something a little bit different here with you. I want to go over a couple of hypothetical case studies. Okay. So sure. what I'm going to do is I'm going to describe three different types of people or, or couples. And, and my goal here is to kind of give you a, a vision as far as who most of my clients are and, and more than likely most of your clients. And what I'd like you to do is tell me what these people need, what they should consider as far as their estate plan. So the first hypothetical case study, let's talk about a young family. Okay, let's say they're in their mid-30s. Let's say there's dual incomes here. There's, there's two children under the age of five, so a young family, much like yours. Right. Let's say we have mortgage debt, some credit cards, maybe some student loan debt. What should this young couple consider with regards to their estate plan? Well, I mean, I think in most case scenarios, we're going to be hitting the, the big three documents that we just went over. I mean, once again, married, married family, young professionals just starting to make some money, certainly have children. Our dual incomes, they have two children. They have some debt. I mean, obviously, the, the big thing that we need is, is um, the, the wills. Because if we don't have a rule book for if one of the, God forbid, one of these young family members passes away, such as the, the, one of the, the parents, certain states have laws of intestacy that are just different. So, I mean, in some states, if one parent passes away, whatever their assets are that are just owned in their name, or that don't have beneficiary designations that would otherwise be considered what we call probate assets, they're split basically 50-50 between the parent and the, and the children, these minor children which could be a problem. So, I mean, let's hypothetically say we have $100,000 and one of these parents pass away, 50,000 goes to the surviving spouse and then 50,000 goes to these two minor kids under five. Sure. I mean, that that's a problem. Yeah, most maybe not the right. That our, the distribution scheme, right. I mean, most people think that whenever you pass away, everything goes to your spouse. That's not necessarily true. With a yeah. will, you can say that. Sure. So that's an example. And of course, I mean, for any of these scenarios, I'm sure that we're going to go through the idea of the car accident where there's no power of attorney involved with their medical or financial creates a problem. But let's just say that this young family, let's say that, the, that one of the spouses is a significant higher earner and packs away a ton of money into the retirement account. As I said before, if something happens to the, um, to that spouse and we need to pay for the two children's cost of living or necessities, you know, the, the other issue is how are we going to access any of that retirement money even if we, if we need to? How sure. do we pay that mortgage? The other issue is this, and I hate to do this. Let's say, God forbid, in a, in a weird circumstance, both of the parents pass away in a tragic accident. Well, in your will, you can write well, who, who will be the guardian of your minor children. Other than that, you're just stuck with default state law. So you could have spouse A's parents and spouse B's parents fighting in court over custody if you don't have in a will who's supposed to take care of the kids in the event of a dual death. So, and I've seen that before. Yeah, that's unfortunate. That's uh, well, which is kind of sad. But that's, those are just some of the issues that, that could arise with it. For me, that's, that's the most important part for this particular hypothetical young family is, is what happens to the kids if, God forbid, something were to happen to both of you. There's two elements. Who's going to raise the children physically? Who's right. going to be the guardian? And then yep. who's going to take care of, hypothetically, the money that they yep. are going to inherit? So two, two very important issues that can be solved with a basic estate plan. Yep. That's, yeah, they're, they're in the basic uh, plan there. Yep. Yep. 
Let's talk about the second hypothetical. This is, uh, let's just call him Bob. Bob's a yep. peak earner. He's 55. His children are in college. His retirement is kind of on the horizon. His mortgage is almost paid off. He, he does have some small health conditions. What should Bob consider as far as an estate plan? Right. So once again, I mean, now the children are in college, so they're over the age of majority, most likely. So he doesn't really have to worry about the guardianship provisions in his will. Bob is a lot of like my clients. I mean, now we're getting to my typical client is, is, is Bob. You know, he's looking at retirement and everything else like that. Of course, I mean, once again, all of these issues are going to be what happens if Bob gets in a car accident? What happens if um, he gets sick and develops uh, some, some significant capacity issues? We want to have powers of attorney in place in order to, I mean, that, that's just going to be a blanket statement for every single <laughs> adult. Sure. They need to have the powers of attorney in place. But from an estate plan, and I, you know, we didn't talk a lot about trust, but there could be uh, some, some time and some issues for maybe, maybe Bob desires. He's, he's small health conditions, but he's relatively young in, in my line of work, at least. And uh, 55 is not that old. So maybe he wants to develop a plan that protects the money for future generations. You're using a trust or, or some type of vehicle uh, that way. So... That's basically what it is. Of course, Bob will need a will no matter what because if he passes away, but most likely the children will get everything. But once again, it all depends on the state legislature's governance system. Um, sure, yeah. Good. Every jurisdiction has a different different system. Right, and again, when you put your estate plan in place, you basically take them out of it. You, you put yes, the right you, people yeah, in you, place. You take, you take your capital city's legislature out of the game plan whenever you make your own. Yep. And that would certainly be the goal with all these situations here. Let's let's Absolutely. do one more. Let's um, this hypothetical. Let's Absolutely. let's talk about retirees. Let's say they're in their mid seventies, retired. Let's say they're snowbirds, right? So that maybe they have a place in the north, and then maybe retreat down to Florida in the in the winter. Let's say they have grown children and grandchildren, no debt. Maybe they have enough money to last them. They're not worried about running out of money. Some charitable inclinations, that sort of thing. What do you think that uh, their main concerns would be? Well, isn't this the ideal scenario, right? We're all trying to get here, right? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> um, I mean, certainly when it comes to this, and I've been saying this the whole time, but these these folks, 75, now we're getting, we're still not like, you know, completely old, but we're getting up there. Now we're having the ability for cognitive issues to happen quicker. We have the ability for a fall to occur accidentally because we're not as nimble as we used to be when we're that age. And, and we have the more likelihood of going, having to go to a facility. 70% of people in the United States at some point in their life are going to spend some time in, into a, in a facility, uh, whether it's just for rehab or whatever, rehabbing an injury at that age. So I mean, that's a real concern. In any event, once again, they, they obviously need the powers of attorney, especially now more than ever, because once again, those cognitive issues, um, it's proven that your cognition, generally your memory just starts to slip as you get up there just because of the nature of being around the sun so many times. Of course. So those are those are super important, and also more likely to have a medical issue. I mean, heart, I mean, I hate to say heart attack, stroke, any of that type of stuff that could render us incapacitated just for even a short period of time, where we would need those those medical um, directives in place. I mean, once again, if they have charitable inclinations, I would suggest, and even to protect potential assets from a long-term care facility, they probably should consult their legal professional to talk about some types of trusts, which will be a different show. Uh, but certainly they're, they're going to want to have wills so that at least they, they put the right person in charge. And once again, I mean, let's just hypothetically say that that's, they're, they're, their kids are grown and their kids are, have more money than they do. So they want to leave their assets to their grandkids, not their kids. 
Well, sure. under, yep. under most state laws, they pass away without a will. Generally speaking, it goes down to the next generation, which would be the children. But they're already they're already loaded. <laughs> they want to go to the grandchildren who are probably in college or what you know whatever, starting that starting life. So you can do that with the will. You can skip over a generation and give it to the grandchildren in order to do that. And certainly, they would need to consult with a legal and financial professional to maybe develop a gifting strategy or a charity strategy or something like that. That would make sense. That. that uh... Let's drive that last point home, Jay. All these different situations, they're obviously hypotheticals, but they could also be you, right? It could be the listener that's tuning in right now. And so even though you have just prescribed a certain course of action, a certain element of documents or or trusts or whatever, doesn't necessarily mean it pertains to the listener. So bottom line is you always want to consult with your attorney your estate planning attorney and your financial professionals, your financial advisor. You want to consult with your team of professionals that you have in place with regards to your particular situation before you get any of these types of things, before you, before you develop a plan, before you take on this, this uh, very important and critical topic of, of developing your estate plan. Jay, th- this has been great. We're about out of time here. But before we go, I do want to give you the opportunity to pr- promote you, promote Jay, promote your firm. Let's talk about that. Let's, how do people reach you? If, if people have a, a situation or need an estate plan or know someone that does, how can they contact you? Yeah, sure. My, my team, uh, we're located, as I said, in the North Hills of, of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Our phone number is 412-486-6624. Once again, that's 412 486 6624. Our website is uh, the law firm is Abernathy and Hegerman. It's Abernathy uh, with all E's after the first day. Uh, Hegerman is H A German, and uh, so Abernathy and Hegerman. <laughs> and it's it's the website's simple. It's www.a-h.law. So a-h.law. There's no com. It's a new URL just for attorneys. So a-h.law. Look us up. My contact information is on there. We always like phone calls. I'm a younger guy, but I like old school fun. I love to pick up the phone and just talk. So uh, that might make it easier. Thank you, Jay. That's great. And that's about all the time we have. So Jay, again, thank you for coming on. This is a very important topic. I really appreciate you spending your time. And for those that are listening that do need help, give them a call. I'm sure we'll be able to help. Now, Thanks, Mike. Of course, you're welcome. Again, as we pointed out, the estate plan is a critical element to a healthy, comprehensive wealth plan. And it's something that I insist that my clients complete within the first year or so of engaging with, with my practice. So that said, if you or a loved one are interested in learning more about my practice or you simply have questions about your own particular situation, you can also reach out to, to me in my office at 724-933-4446. You could also email me at michael.dukovich at rbc.com, and that's D-U-K-O-V-I-C-H, or you can simply visit my website at michaeldukovich.com. And on my website, you'll find tons of valuable information on a wide range of financial topics. Because after all, my goal is to educate and inform. And my goal is to be top of mind for if and when questions come up down the line. I'm, I'm looking to work with people that understand you shouldn't be doing this alone. I'm looking to work with people who, who value the plan and people that recognize that life's greatest returns are only realized when you invest beyond your money. So remember, it's your money, it's your life. Take control. Thank you for listening to the Beyond Your Money podcast with financial advisor, Mike Dukovich. Make sure you click the subscribe button now so you will be notified when new podcasts are released. If you want to know more about working with Mike, please call 724-933-4446 or visit michaeldukovich.com. It's your money. It's your life. Take control. Take control.
The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of RBC Wealth Management. All opinions and estimates constitute the speaker's judgment as of the date of this recording and are subject to change without notice and are provided in good faith but without legal responsibility. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial services provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. RBC Wealth Management does not provide tax or legal advice. All decisions regarding the tax or legal implications of your investment should be made in connection with your independent tax or legal advisor. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. It is not possible to invest directly in an index. Investment and insurance products offered through RBC Wealth Management are not insured by the FDIC or any other federal government agency, are not deposits or other obligations of or guaranteed by a bank or any bank affiliate, and are subject to investment risks, including the possible loss of the principal amount invested. RBC Wealth Management is a division of RBC Capital Markets, LLC, member NYSE, FINRA, and SIPC.